You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Every parent knows that raising children involves sacrifice. Just how much sacrifice depends on a lot of factors. For Mary Lee, it meant giving up a passion she'd pursued for most of her life. Mary is Lee Swing Sing's wife, he of Mayo's Last Dancer fame. And if you haven't heard the story before, Swin Sing came from impoverished China to become an international ballet star. Mary met them when they were both performing with the Houston Ballet Company. They danced together, fell in love, and eventually started a family. Mary has written about what happened next in her memoir, Mary's Last Dance, The Untold Story of the Wife of Mayo's Last Dancer. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. Beautiful. Thank you. Now, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but I guess for me, reading about your story, the thing that struck me most was... We know all about Swin Sing, Lee Swin Sing, and we know the story, and it's been much celebrated. So people even outside of the ballet community know of his story. But you had an equally exciting and prestigious career, and you were at the height of your career when you made a, a decision that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, has it surprised you that the outside world knew so little of you. I, I, not, I'm not talking about people who are, who are across ballet would have known about your career, but those that knew about your husband didn't seem to know about your life. Was that ever strange for you? Um, not, not really. Lee's book is based on his early life and I wasn't really part of his early life until we met and danced. <clears throat> and the very interesting part of his life is his family life and how he managed to leave China and then become a success and then help his family. And then I was at sort of at the end of the journey um, <laughs> meeting him. And also I, um, having my uh, first daughter and finding out that she had profound deafness at 18 months really kept me out of the picture of everything. It was Sophie and I kind of alone marching towards getting her to be able to have a conversation with me. So it was a very quiet, disciplined journey because I talked seven days a week for 15 years. <laughs> well, that's good to know for this interview yeah. that I don't have any problems with you being a good yeah. talker. No, no. Um, well, let's go back to the beginning when you were a, a little girl. When did you first start ballet? Um, not till eight, actually. I was one of, grew up in a beautiful, large family of eight. I was the eldest girl, five boys and three girls. So I was a serious tomboy. Wow. Um, my mother was very genteel and, and divine, but she had these eight children to look after. And um, one of my friends was taking her daughter to ballet and my mother thought it would be great for me to try and get a little bit of less tomboyish. <laughs> and my mother loved the art. She was actually played the piano for uh, to a very high level. And when I went to my, my first ballet lesson, I just loved it from that minute. And I think, in a way, the teacher, even that very first day, even through my wildness, I think she saw something in me and she was an extraordinary teacher. And from that moment on, it was the place I wanted to be. And she opened up a world for me, actually, and many others 
And she was a great lady, often didn't even get off the chair and spoke <laughs> to us and educated us and offered us this world of ballet and music and the world, really, because we did character dances, we did Scottish, we did everything, and to a very high level. So it was amazing. She ended up having three ballerinas in the world, and she encouraged my parents when I was 15 to save some money to send me to the Royal Ballet School if I could get in, mm-hmm. which I did, and they took me to London when I was 16, and they stayed for three weeks, settled me in, and I couldn't wait till they left. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> And that was the beginning of my ballet while I was a student for 18 months. And then I got a job in London Festival uh, Ballet through Rudolf Nureyev, would you believe? Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. That is a huge thing for a a 16-year-old to do. I mean, wonderful that your parents went with you for three weeks. And I'm sure you were very excited when they left. But. Was it daunting? I mean, that's so young to be so far from home. It was. It was. But I sort of, you know, I was very focused on, and I sort of didn't really even know the outcome, what the outcome would be. But the ballet, I just loved it. And I just, I don't think there was anything else I ever really sort of thought of. And I loved everything about it. I loved theatre. I loved and there was London in the centre of it and all these people all passionate about the same thing and going to Covent Garden. But it was a very sort of singular world. So in a way, I was very safe and there was nothing else that I wanted to do. So through that discipline, you know, I was offered, you know, a much larger world eventually. So, no, I just always loved it. I still do. I mean, that's what I'm doing now. So yeah. it's the only thing I can imagine doing as well, except that I did write the book. Yes, you did. <laughs> wrote a book, which is a very, there's no mean feat. Mary, you were mentioning that um, your teacher was an incredible teacher and you're now the ballet mistress at Queensland Ballet. Yeah. What do you take from her and the way she taught you as you teach dancers today? Oh, look, I think we're very different. You know, generations change. Mm. But, you know, the persistence and uh, the, yeah, continuity of practicing and just striving to pursue that excellence, um, she set a very high standard. And I'm like that too. Yeah. So, but pro- possibly, possibly a little kinder. <laughs> you are or she was? No, I think I am. <laughs> Fabulous. That generation was tough. I bet, I bet. So you met Swinsing in um, at, when you were performing at the Houston Ballet Company. Yes. Um, did you know that having a family would be part of your future? No, absolutely not. Look, when I went to Houston, I was lucky enough to have Lee as my partner. And he was the most beautiful dancer, but he was even a more exceptional partner. And we were the right height. It's very difficult, just like life in you know marriage. It's very difficult to find your soulmate, mm. and very difficult to find your soulmate on stage as well. It's just as difficult. So when Lee and I found this connection, um, we were like, we definitely are not going to have a get involved we really liked each other but definitely not because we wanted our partnership on stage not to cross over but eventually that changed and so 
So, no, I, I, I didn't have plans really for marriage, children, any of it. I just, at that point, I just had my career. It was Lee who asked me to marry him. And I was like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the children, you know, eventually um, came and my director was amazing. He just said, just, there's no problem. You come back to exactly your same position. So life was very beautiful when we had Sophie. We had the beautiful husband, Lee's um, parents um, came to live with us. They lived in a little garage apartment out the back. They looked after Sophie and I went back on stage. Only speaking here as an outsider who doesn't understand the ballet world, but I remember um, being told that ballet training was so vigorous that girls sometimes didn't get their period and that it, it was difficult to have a baby, not just because of that, but also because of the rigorous training and that, what your body went through. Is that just a myth? Well, it depends, I think. It depends on your, you know, background, your early background. And, and see, I came from central Queensland. I grew up on meat and vegetables and fruit and very healthy. So we weren't sort of into that dieting generation. So I think, you know, for me, I was very healthy, very normal. We didn't even really talk too much about dieting, although my ballet teacher would notice that we put on a few pounds before an exam or something, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of so much forefront in your mind. So I was always very healthy, and I think you can get very thin. And often when I had a huge workload, I would miss a period, but then it would you know come back. So no, for me was not a problem. But I think if 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 dancers do wait again until their late thirties then I think like all young women, it's it's harder. It's harder. What about, um, as you mentioned, your director was fabulous and said, come back. And after Sophie, you did go back to dancing. Now, I didn't want to get off the couch for, I reckon, about nine months after I had my first child. Yes. It was, uh, as we all know, however you give birth to a child, there is recovery for your body and it can be very tiring. Um, What was that like for you? I mean, did you find that because you were so incredibly fit that you recovered from birth better or in a a faster way? I mean, how was it afterwards? Mm. I think um, I had a mindset that definitely I was going back on stage. So my mind was set at that and I had a beautiful to, Sophie was a very, very easy baby. Mm. I found breastfeeding quite easy. And then I started back doing a bar uh, two months after I had Sophie. And wow. Lee's parents came and they're just so beautiful. Even though we didn't speak the same language, they spoke Chinese, I only spoke English. I had to learn it a little bit. And then Lee helped me get back, actually. And I swam and I just had a focus. And also I didn't need to cook the food you know, Nana and Yaya cooked the food. I didn't have to do the washing. All I had to do was focus on getting fit. And so when I had a goal because we were performing, Lee and I were invited to perform in Hong Kong five months, the December. I think Sophie was born in July and we performed in Hong Kong in December and we took Sophie with us in a pouch and I handed her over and put my tutu on. And <laughs> it wasn't my best, I don't think. But it still pushed me. And so by the time seven months, I was back on stage. But I was not running a house. I was not cooking food. I was not shopping. All I did was go to work. 
and do my rehearsals. And actually, in a way, it was just once I had a baby till it was very clear there was no wasted time. Yes, of course. So I went in, did my work and just couldn't wait to get home again. Yeah. And I was just very lucky to have Nana and, yeah, yeah, I mean, people that loved her. And that in in hindsight, when I found out that Sophie was profoundly deaf, I knew that the the month that I was away when Sophie was being looked after, it was Nana and Yaya, and that gave me great comfort. As you mentioned, you found out that Sophie was profoundly deaf when she was 18 months old. Yeah. Talk us through your response to that diagnosis, yours and Lee's response. I was devastated. I think we, we had come to the Australian Ballet to do a guest performance at the Opera House and we'd done also a 30-year celebration in Queensland. So my family got to see us dance and we brought Sophie with us. And during that trip, Sophie was playing with her cousins and a red balloon popped and Lee saw all the other children startle and she didn't. And we were both a little worried about her language transition because Deaf children do make noises. They do go ba ba ba, ma ma ma. They just mimic until a certain time. So there was no, we didn't think, you know, ba ba is dad in Chinese. So we didn't think um, anything about that. But when Lee saw that, we 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 definitely went to have her hearing tested, and the pediatrician was like, well, you should have an ABR. So we were like, okay, have an ABR. What's an ABR? Oh, they, they put them to sleep mm-hmm. and then they put um, noises through their sound waves through their brain and they read what they can detect. So you know immediately if they've got a moderate loss or a severe and she had a profound hearing loss. So he just walked in and we sort of had walked into the hospital with a, you know, a baby that we thought could hear and walked out with one that couldn't. So it was very, very devastating. And I had to do a tour of Canada. We were dancing in Canada and that's why I called it Mary's Last Dance because as I was coming off the stage in one of the ballets with ghost dancers walking with a group of people, I knew that I wouldn't be on stage again because how could I leave her if she couldn't hear or communicate? So I knew I had to... I knew I had to do that for her. And in those days, in, in sorry, 1990, I mean, we didn't even have internet or Google. So mm. I had to do this all by instinct or, you know, talking and finding out. There wasn't even books. There wasn't a Mary's Last Dance, I mm. wish. Yeah. So then basically uh, they sent us out of the hospital with, with no nothing. So then I finally called up a deaf school and they said, come in. Yeah, we had a round, round circle meeting with Sophie, and they just said, "Well, you know," I said, "I wanted her to be able to speak," and they said, "Well, she'll have to have intense therapy, and you will have to." But I said, "But I'm a dancer," and they said, "Well, she she'll need to learn from you." So, at that moment, I made the decision that I had to give up my career and 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 be with her because I also knew we were on a, a timeline because she was 18 months and, you know, she'd already missed two years. So it was, a, it was another, another completely other world, just like my ballet world. This was the deaf world. And it was very, very involved with a two-year-old with no hearing and no language. Before we talk about what it was like to 
eventually get Sophie to have that conversation with you that you were aiming for. Talk us through what it felt like to be doing that last performance, knowing that it was something you loved, knowing that it would be the last time. That's the key sacrifice that you made. Can you tell us what it felt like to be on the stage that last time? Well, it was devastating, really. And because you can imagine, I was walking and moving my body and listening to an orchestra Mm. and thinking at the same time while I was moving, she's not going to hear this. How can you be in a world when you're not going to be able to hear this music? So that was very devastating. But I just, you know, at that moment, I I just real, you know, I I truly realised that she couldn't be, you know, I had to be her communicator. So, um, you know, walked to my dressing room, sobbed, and then I went and told Lee, and he was like, are you sure? Are you sure? And people often ask me, you know, did you resent giving up your career because he kept on? And I said, actually, I didn't because he's the one He's the only one that really knew what I gave up because he knew me so well and he knew the passion that I had and he knew how hard I worked. And he's always, he always understood that Mm. more than anyone because it wasn't like he was a doctor or something. I mean, he was with me my whole career. He knew how talented I was. He knew, he knew, understood all of those things, but, also, when you have a child with a disability, it's very expensive. Yeah. So it's not, you know, like you have to earn. And it was expensive. Doctors and, you know, all kinds of things. And you go on journeys hoping you can fix it or whatever. Luckily for me, I I just researched everything. So um, you set out with the goal of having a conversation with Sophie Um, at some point and as you mentioned there was no internet you had to do the research had to sort of get out there and hit the pavement and find out what the options were what did giving Sophie the opportunity to speak involve on a practical level oh it was I mean just just thinking about it now makes me feel exhausted (laughs) that's why writing the book was exhausting because a you can't you have to put those hearing aids in and you have to get them to attend to you as a two-year-old you know point at your ear and say what you want to say but like in very not single words but like two words and then develop to three words but also make it auditorily interesting so that they get your attention and you know just repeating and repeating simple games so that involves speech therapy and they teach you how to do that one word, two words. So you start off with, you know, dogs barking and, you know, woof, woof and meow. And then they sort of have to point to the picture to see if they've heard it, to think that they understand. I mean, this is not like concepts. This is just finding the difference between silence and sound. Mm. So they're even aware because hearing Oh, Sophie couldn't really hear that well, anything with hearing aids either. But it's just a channel. It's not language. And deaf children don't, they just don't pick up language like normal people. It's not like they don't overhear. Yes. Never by osmosis. It's everything that you say and you intend to put in into them. So the force of which I intended to put 
thing and I just repeated and repeated. By the time she was three or four, she used to put her hand over my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But no more. more. I was going to say that sounds um, both very intense for you but also very intense for a small child to be concentrating at that level. Incredible. Mm. It was, and then every night I went to sleep and I thought, have I done enough? Because you're always trying to catch up. Yeah. If I'd known what she was going to be like today, mm. I probably would have stressed less. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant to hear. There are many in the deaf community that um, have very strong opinions about things like signing or cochlear implants and... I know that eventually the cochlear implant became something that you're considering for Sophie. Did you have any pushback from the deaf community in terms of how you wanted to help Sophie? We had two language households. So we had both Chinese and English and my parents were in Australia and I wanted Sophie to be able to first communicate with my own, our family. So for me, speaking language was my first choice. I always thought if that did not work, we could go to signing. So I never had an opposition to it. I just, a dream of Lee's was for his children to speak Chinese so that they could communicate with his family because his family didn't speak any English, particularly his parents. So that was really, really sort of part of the journey too. And I just really wanted to hear her voice. At that point, I didn't know about the cochlear implant. There was no information about that. In the 90s, it was just sort of hearsay, really. And also the reputation of the implant, cochlear implant then was not greatly researched and there was not research out on small children. So you had to be very brave to pick the implant in the 1990s. We were certainly the pioneers. However, with sign language, I always offered it to Sophie later on and she was very busy trying to learn things and she did have a few signing friends and Sophie did take up signing. She learned it at 23 when she had a job. Her partner that she worked with taught her sign language and I think it's a beautiful language and I think if you can speak and sign and in fact, after I wrote the book, we've all decided to sign. So we have a lesson on Monday night and we all sign. I think it's a beautiful language. Sophie loves it and uses both. And I I think it's incredible. And I hope that this book will bring into the sunshine the signing community or, well, basically the deaf community. Yeah. So it was a choice I made personally at the time for my family. But whatever choices people may make for their families, I just, um, signing is a beautiful language. I understand that Sophie helped you write this book. What was that like? Well, Sophie didn't, Sophie didn't write. Sophie pushed me to write the book (laughs) and she was relentless. She came up here before she was going to Shanghai for a job and the visa was late coming through and Sophie had never pushed me to write before and I had no intention. Lots of people had wanted me to. But I also knew the effort and work it would entail to write the book because I watched my husband do that. So I was working full time anyway. So it was a bit of a project for Sophie and she said, Mum, I will help you. So what happened is I started writing freehand 
and she basically then typed everything because I wrote everything freehand mm. and she typed it all onto the computer and then emailed it to our editor in um, Melbourne. And then the greatest joy was sitting, doing the final edit with Lee across the table and Sophie and me and all editing together line wow. by line. Wow. And Yeah. That's fabulous. Yeah. Did any of your children become dancers? No, no, unfortunately. But they all learned and they all loved it. Perhaps it was just too close. And Sophie wanted to, but um, I think with her hearing, it was just too difficult. Yeah. Now, you eventually returned to ballet. What was that like? Oh, I loved it. And I really wanted to teach professionals. But I started when we landed in Melbourne in 1995. I, or actually 96, I just started teaching students around the, the corner from me and at BCA in Melbourne. And then uh, eventually I got a job with the Australian Ballet, which was fantastic, teaching professional company class. And I did that for 10 years, but part-time. And that suited me because I still had so much to do with Sophie and my other two children, and also the Australian Ballet weren't in Melbourne. They were only in Melbourne four months of the year, so I would have a break. But now when we came to Queensland, specifically too because they didn't have many finances, Lee needed uh, me to work with him. So I've been working eight years here pretty much full-time. But it's just been a joy because the company is just amazing. This is, again, another ignorant outside of ballet question. Yeah. Do you and Lee ever dance together still? No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and, and I just want to know if professional ballet dancers can just have a groove on the dance floor without all of their arabesques and... Yeah. Um, we, we can waltz together. <laughs> but Lee's not really a groover. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I do. I do. You know, because of his Chinese upbringing, he's... It's just not the so he can waltz and he can partner a ballerina, yeah. You know, pirouettes on point and all that sort of stuff. And we can like in the studio, we can pretend to be Giselle and Albrecht if we're directing or showing something. Yes. So that's just so easy for us. But um, just going on the dance floor, generally we've had a eight or nine hour day anyway. So usually. <laughs> <laughs> We're not crazy about it. No. <laughs> Mary, it is such a fascinating story and I'm so excited that it's out in the world. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you, Siobhan. Bye. Uh, bye-bye. That's Mary Lee, ballet mistress at Queensland Ballet and author of Mary's Last Dance. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.